I'm Dr. Jill Weiner. I'm a white woman, a doctor, a meditation teacher, a tapping practitioner, a writer, and I'm an aspiring anti-racist, an identity which I must constantly strive towards, work on, and reevaluate. This podcast amplifies the powerful voices of women and men in all aspects of the anti-racist space, along with some of my own insights and explorations on topic ranging from healthcare to spirituality to criminal justice and beyond. In order to provide a nuanced, educational, and honest examination of systemic racism and dominant culture. Hi there, welcome. I'm so excited to have Dr. Irene Dankwa Mullen here with me today. She's a nationally recognized industry physician and scientist, health, health equity thought leader, scholar, and author with over 20 years of diverse local, regional, national, and global leadership. Um, in healthcare systems, businesses, and the community. She's the Chief Health Equity Officer and Deputy Chief Health Officer at IBM Watson Health. And she is a member of the IBM Industry Academy, a selected community of preeminent leaders to drive innovation and engage in cutting edge work. She was formerly Deputy Director, Extramural Scientific Programs at the National Institute of Minority Health and Health Disparities at the NIH and played a key role on promoting strategic trans-NIH and federal efforts. She is the lead scientific editor of the first authoritative resource textbook called The Science of Health Disparities Research, designed to identify research questions, guide collaborative and participatory efforts with communities to promote health equity. She has published widely on health disparities, evaluation of AI and machine learning technologies, including on the integration of health equity, ethical AI, and social justice principles into the AI ML development life cycle. And I'm gonna to need to ask you what AI ML means. Dr. Dankwa Mullen attended Barnard College and attended her medical and public health degree from Dartmouth Medical School and Yale School of Public Health. She trained in internal medicine at the Johns Hopkins Bayview Hospital in Baltimore, Maryland. And for anyone listening who's not in medicine, those are all extremely excellent, excellent institutions. Um, so uh, Irene, thank you so much, Dr. Dankwa Thank you for, for being here and for joining me and for the work that you do. Um, thank welcome. you for having me. I'm so delighted to be here. Thank you so much. That's awesome. Okay, so first things first, what is AIML? So AI is artificial intelligence mm -hmm. uh, and ML stands for machine learning. Machine learning. Okay. All right. Now I feel like I'm tuned in. Um, so, I mean, there's so much to talk about. How did you, I'm fascinated about everything that you do. I feel like the artificial intelligence part, like I want to get there as well. Cause I, you're an MD MPH and that is not a typical path or a typical, um, career focus. So I just love to get, you know, tell your story a little bit and, um, you know, where you grew up and, and how you got into the health equity space. Oh, absolutely. Uh, so I, I grew up in Ghana. I was born in Ghana, West Africa, grew up there. Um, and I think my cultural upbringing and my, you know, influenced my interest in health and medicine and public health. Um, when I was young, about 11 or 12, um, I wanted to be a doctor, I wanted to be a scientist, um, but my interest in health equity gradually evolved. Um, and my upbringing and my, and my early experiences with the healthcare system environment in Ghana also influenced my desire 
uh, to choose medicine um, and science and public health. I, so I actually went to high school in Ghana and after high school came to the United States for college. And so I was, I went to Barnard, studied biochemistry um, and was very lucky, I think, you know, I would say to have had a lot of mentors, had great um, teachers and, you know, went on to Dartmouth Medical School uh, for my medi medical education and, and degree. Um, I think I, I was able to see the difference between the healthcare system in, in Ghana where inequities was mostly around social, you know, um, social or environmental was mostly around, you know, poverty, socioeconomic status. But then I noticed in the US healthcare system, disparities was also along racial lines, um, along different lines, you know, um, gender and, and race and ethnicity, as I mentioned, mm -hmm. um, persons with disability. And, and so I think I really learned about, about that. It was also more of my intellectual curiosity about, you know, what about disease and about you know, health and, and I think, I think that all, it, it was gradual. I mean, I didn't go into medicine thinking I wanted to go into the health equity space. Yeah. Um, it was more about my, you know, what I saw around and really wanted to do more for marginalized communities that have been marginalized um, because I grew up, you know, in Ghana and, and, really also wanted to do public health. So I think, I think there were a whole range of factors that influenced my career path. Yeah, yeah. What are some of the, the other, I, I'm hearing you say that the, the difference in the healthcare systems and the disparities in Ghana were more financial in the US it's more racial and based on identities. Um, what are some other differences you see in the culture there versus here that that um, that marginalize people. Well, I think it it has to do with the you know there's more diversity here, right? Um, and in 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 Ghana, I said I mentioned it was around a long socioeconomic status, and in the U.S., it it was around social dis so social disadvantaged populations, right? And, and in Ghana, socially disadvantaged populations were those who had no means or those in rural, right, poverty. Um, in the US, it was along social disadvantaged also included race, right, and racism and um, the longstanding, I would say, you know, where there was white privilege and certain groups where, where discriminated against, excluded, mm -hmm. because they probably saw them as, you know, inferior. And so I, and, and I think it all historical from the slave trade and, and having different people come in here working 
um, you know, Ghana is mostly homogeneous. Everyone is African, Black, most, most right? And a few foreigners. Um, and so there was nothing like racism. There was definitely tribalism. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's tribalism everywhere. But the profound discrimination, racism, and exclusion was, was um, and how that really is penetrates into our healthcare system, not just healthcare system, but housing and, and other social factors was more prominent here. And I think that, that was, that's the difference where there, there's more, you know, the tribalism here is really um, along all those different factors. If you're not in a particular circle, um, having the same culture, having the same upbringing or skin color, mm-hmm. You are, you know, you may feel excluded. Yeah, it's yeah. a different dynamic, which was, which was to me, um, really different and eye-opening. Would you be open to sharing a little bit about what your experience was, like high school in Ghana, and then coming to the U.S. for college at Barnard? A, like, what, how did you choose Barnard, and and what was it like for you to kind of witness that culture change as someone who grew up? in a different culture and, and not having yeah. to experience that. Yeah. I, so I think I, I actually grew in Ghana. I attended an all girls high school, um, Holy Child Secondary School, which was in Cape Coast, Ghana. Uh, I had the absolute best time, made the best friends and they still keep in touch. So I, and I, it was a great education. And so I was really interested in a similar, you know, I'd grown up around being in a boarding school, all girls. And when I began to explore opportunities in college in the United States, I was looking, I focused on all girls schools and so Barnard and the sister mm-hmm. schools like um, where Branmore, where, where those colleges that I was looking at. Um, I ended up at Barnard because I had, we had some family in, in New York. And so that was easier. Um, sure. And I was extremely lucky that I got accepted into Barnard, um, which was my first choice. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah. So what was it like when you got there? How did, how did oh, it so yes, yes. arrive and be, be put into that culture? I mean, it sounds like you were kind of used to the all girls environment. Um, how did it feel? Well, I, I mean, I think also the New York is so diverse, right? And so I think that made it a little bit easier to transition in. Um, there's a huge, you know, immigrant population. It's it's an international, you know, uh, sort of you felt you felt included, right, in terms of being a student because there were international students as well. Um, and and there was diversity, cultural diversity in New York. Um, but in a way, being in New York City was totally different from growing up in Accra. I mean, it's, it, it, even anywhere, coming from anywhere to New York City is, it's like um, a huge adrenaline, you know, uh, so, I was I was fascinated the nightlife, the you know, 
police, I mean, the students, the train system, uh, I, it was a little bit overwhelming at first, but I got used to it. I, it was, you know, we had been, we watched television in Ghana and so we would watch movies and films and, and so it was as expected, but maybe a little bit more. Yeah. And so I, I it was, it was, um, it was interesting times. Um, and I, I think I got, a, you know, I, it was a, it was something that I got used to and, and then enjoyed being in, in New York for four years. Um, afterwards, I was just ready to go to Dartmouth to the rural quiet mm, okay. medical studies and um, finish medical school. You mentioned the importance of mentorship, that you've had really great mentorship. Um, did that start in Barnard or where did that start for you? And can you share some of those experiences? Because I, I hear so many people talking about the lack of mentorship that they had and being told, like, you shouldn't go to medical school. You should go to, you know, like, it's, it was, it's been such a traumatic experience for so many people. I'm, I'm, I'm so grateful to hear that you had had a, a positive experience. And I just wonder what if you could share a little bit about that. Absolutely. And I actually would like even share when I was in high school in Ghana, right? Mm. And um, in an all girls high school, but I was in the science class. Um, we had teachers who were Peace Corps volunteers. Uh, and so I always talk about how, and they were from somewhere from the United States, my physics, biology, chemistry professors were all, uh, you know, Peace Corps volunteers. Mm -hmm. And so there was that. Um, so I would say, you know, that that was sort of a social mission where, you know, we had volunteers who would come in and, and, and teach us in Ghana and inspire us um, into the STEM. So I, I was, I had that support. I had that motivation and inspiration from, from others, right. Who would come mm -hmm. and be in an all girls. We were in a small town in, you know, in Cape coast. When I came here, um, I think I met, I met, you know, our, even, you know, I had, I lived with an aunt, um, at that time, in, in New York, they've all moved, you know, outside that, I mean, I think our family was all about education. Um, I could go back to my grandfather's story, who also was the only one who went to finish primary school and, and instilled education in my father and, and, you know, the entire family. And so we had grown up from those influences. Um, mentoring came, you know, and when, you know, I'm trying to remember in, in, in Barnard and a lot of the teachers um, and, and also a network within where, you know, it, it, I think in Barnard, you know, where they had counselors, but it was also more in, at Dartmouth, in medical school okay. where, you know, um, Dr. Regan Smith and, and a few, you know, doc, Dr. O'Donnell were all sort of mentoring and saying, you could, you could do this. And, and, you know, they motivated and encouraged all of us. And, you know, me, I, I found, I found that sort of source of 
encouragement and motivation and inspiration. Um, I So I have, along the way, I would say, to where I am have been, you know, mentored by so many people. I've, I've reached out, grown my network, um, and I always try to give back and, and mentor others as well. Yeah. How does that show up for you now? Are you mentoring people in IBM or is it more kind of outside of that network or both? It's both in IBM and, um, you know, outside uh, the people who reach out on LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I've made a lot of, you know, because I felt when I was at the NIH, right, um, there were a lot of early investigators and, and junior scientists that wanted to conduct research around health equity and health disparities. I ended up creating and directing a course um, on health disparities research at the NIH and, and it drew a lot of um, applicants. Um, we initially started with 40, but in the first year and you know, increased it to 60. So what I'm saying is basically I, you know, I got to know a lot of yeah. scientists and early investigators and PhD and postdocs who were all interested in health disparities research and would apply. Um, we ended up, you know, then it increased to about 80 or 90, very competitive, uh, where they'll come to the NIH for a two-week health disparities course. That sounds um, amazing. Yeah, so from there, exactly, it was a great opportunity. And so from there, I, I, I got a lot of, you know, get, got to meet a, a lot of people who were all inspiring and were, showed promise, were very promising in, in their career and have maintained that sort of friendship and, and yeah. What it, what are what is the work you're doing now? So you went from the NIH and now you're at IBM. How do you, how do you connect artificial intelligence and health equity um, work? Artificial intelligence and health equity work. So it's all about data, right? I mean, I I find myself extremely lucky because I'm working at the intersection of healthcare, um, public health, and um, technology, right? And it's it's been recognized as cutting technology. And technology and data has, I think, has tremendous potential. Um, so much promise and, and there's a lot of data that I think it's not being used well. The health sector has generated large amounts of health data um, and it's driven by accumulated biomedical research by public health data, by our EHR systems. They're all meaningful data, but they're so large and complex to be handled by our traditional, you know, analysis or software mm-hmm. um, on, you know, to, to surface insights. And so this is where AI comes in because now we have big data in healthcare that's so overwhelming that it needs some artificial intelligence to really look at trends and 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 inform precision medicine that where we're heading, right? Because it's no longer 
determinants of health, causes of diseases are complex and they depend on multiple biological, environmental, social, cultural factors, including economic factors. And because we're all unique individuals, we're all unique, we have unique physiology, unique and differential reaction to disease, we need to really, you know, our efforts at bringing these technologies or so advanced analytics and AI to the forefront needs to be sufficiently able to address this complexity. And so my work is to make sure that our AI tools um, is, is really delving into these determinants of and, and unique factors that make an, an individual susceptible to a disease or to adverse outcomes. Um, because for the most part, we've been practicing one size fits all medicine. Yeah. We've, we've had, you know, very no diversity in our clinical trials. Um, and as science advances, as we have real world evidence data, I think we've reached the limits of our human capacity actually. Um, and we need AI and, and data to help us compute and, and practice medicine to our fullest potential. That is so fascinating. Um, are you able to, this may, this may, may or may not be something you can do, but are you able to give like a specific example of how like a, in a specific disease state or a specific population or, or how, like a, cause I hear everything you're saying and I like have a medical background and I'm also slightly like, it sounds really fancy and high tech and I would love to help like understand it a little bit more. So can you share a little bit more about like the application of that on the ground? Absolutely. Let's see. I mean, we, we're, we're still in the early stages and I, I think you're right. Not a lot. I mean, I would say, for example, it's so many things. For example, we, when we, we could use AI to surface questions like, um, I mean, and it's being used now, predictive and risk, right? Mm -hmm. And so when a patient comes to the hospital with, uh, I mean, oncology is one probably easier example, easier example mm -hmm. where a patient comes in with a diagnosis of cancer and you want to determine the right course of treatment or the right management. And there's a lot of advances in cancer, you know, where this is where precision oncology is, I think it's at, at advancing. I mean, the oncologist and the medical team would make a, a determination on the course of treatment. And AI can come in to say, you know, to look at vast amount of data on patients that may have that similar pathology or similar cultural background, the age, comorbidities to determine that course of treatment. Wow. And they can include biologics. They could say you need, you know, chemo for the certain amount of period or, you know, radiation or we would add this particular treatment because you have that. I mean, so it's not going in blindly, mm -hmm. but it's really tailoring um, with clinical decision support too, or if, you know, sometimes it, so we're working on a lot of um, 
studies, right? Um, and, and using AI and analytics on vast amount of data to what we call patient similarity, right? Is one of them, you know, how have similar patients done on a particular medication or treatment um, so that we optimize treatment for that particular, you know, this patient sitting in front of me. I mean, that's an example. That's amazing. I want it to be simple, but yeah. No, that was amazing. And that helped a lot to illustrate it. I think AI in general, <laughs> I'll be perfectly honest, AI confuses me a little bit. So it's like for me to not. So I, I'm, I'm assuming that some people listening here may be confused as well. So that really helped. Thank you. I'd, I'd love to get your perspective on this. So there's, you know, as a doctor, I, I have heard and learned, you know, a lot of the, the studies that have been done have been primarily on you know, white male patients and have not included diverse groups. And then there's the kind of other factor of experimentation on people and, and, and wanting to not do that, um, that there has been a horrible history. And I think maybe still continues of, of mistreating and not doing enough um, consent for black patients and other minoritized groups. So how do you how do you balance that? And what is your recommendation for studies? And 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 what are how do you make sure that people don't feel like they're being experimented on or that they're not actually being experimented on? Does that question make sense? It does. And and it's a great question and it's and it's tough. I mean, um we certainly have to be inclusive in in our clinical trials in a, and in our studies. And, and for the most part, we're, you know, clinical trials are usually, you know, in, a, in, a, in an environment that's not real world, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, so that's one thing. But we also need to build trust. I mean, there's a lot of mistrust from, you know, experiments that, you know, and, and not appropriate consent. And, and so, I mean, I think building trust with the community and showing our, our trustworthiness and working with communities for the long term, not just going in for studies. And, and so I think a lot of work has been done, but I think we need to do more. Um, and COVID certainly exposed all the racism and, and really social inequities that, and, mm -hmm. and systemic inequities that we have already had been talking about, but it, you know, was highlighted. Yeah. Um, I think there's a lot of education that needs to be done, I think, and, and it's still being done, but more needs to be done, more investment in communities um, that are still trying to survive and, and thrive and, and including them, bringing them to the table uh, is, is a, but I think trust is building trust and acknowledging the wrongs um, is, is where we need to start. It, it's hard. I also would say it's not only clinical studies, but this is where we need real world evidence, right? Because in clinical trials, a lot of the time, they may not necessarily include patients with comorbidities. They have an inclusion criteria and it's very much not, you know, a natural environment. And so what AI or data, big data does is to look at how have patients been treated and look at trends in data and you're able to use that, right, for, for some insights or some evidence on 
on how you would take care of a patient. And so I, I think we're moving towards where we'll say, you know, what is clinical evidence? How, how are you basing your decision on treating patients? Is it based on clinical research? Only not everyone gets into research. So it should be based on, you know, evidence, real world studies. It also based on, you know, integrating the patient's values and preferences, of course, but um, for the most part, we need to redefine what evidence is because our evidence from clinical research has, for the most part, excluded um, minority patients, excluded patients from low socioeconomic um, status communities, um, and a lot of work needs to be done in that in that realm or in that space. Thank you. That is really helpful. Um, it is so complex. It is. Um, yeah, and there, we've <laughs> it's sort of been like integrated into the system for so long, and it's so baked in that there's so much to undo. Um, and so I'm I'm so glad that you're doing the work that you're doing. And, and I, I mean, what you're saying about the clinical trials too, there's so many inclusion and exclusion and people who things. So then in real world, how does that actually translate? So it sounds like the AI really helps with that as well. Yes. Um, and, and, and so I think the key here is making sure that, you know, there's a lot of concern around AI and the ethics of it and the social implications and saying, well, how would we have access to AI? AI may also even worsen the digital divide. Mm. Um, and that's why, you know, we also need to think about, you know, AI has a social mission too, and it needs to. Um, and that, you know, we cannot continue where, you know, humans are biased and the AI tools are as biased as, as humans. And so I think it's that it, we need to improve that entire continuum, right? I mean, the concerns about maybe AI and machine learning algorithms are surfacing decisions that are not socially aligned with reality. Um, and so we need to make sure that these AI tools are also rooted in fairness and in equity. Um, and that is part point. of what I'm doing, yeah. That's such a good point. What, what is your, um, what lights you up the most about the work you do? I, I think the promise of, I mean, it cuts across the, you know, what lights me up, um, mm -hmm. everything. I think it's, it's not only cutting edge, but I mean, part of what I'm doing is, is a social mission work. I think I'm, I'm, I'm trying to put the human back into AI and technologies. Mm. Um, I think that there's also a critical need to invest in diversity uh, of research in that space. Um, and if not, you know, if people are not there thinking about health equity, then it's just going to be worse. Uh, so an important aspect of what I'm doing is to really bring out the human intelligence of artificial intelligence. Yeah. Oh, I love that. What is your growing edge? What, where are you still like looking to, to grow and learn? Oh, I'm learning every day. I think even within health, 
racial justice like what what should what success with racial justice right and i'm still in a learning laboratory i will i always say um i i would like to learn about what's best for community how do we optimize health and um what's the promising or best approaches to to achieve health equity um i want a world in which we will all be everyone would be living to their maximum potential. Can you imagine if we all, you know, there was equity and there would be so much productivity, so much innovation, um, and everyone would be working at their fullest capacity. So that. I love that. Yeah, yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about your book that you wrote? Oh, and yes. Is that something that people can find on their own or is that more in like academia spaces? Actually, it's on Amazon. It's okay. uh, this is a book that we, it, it's actually a scientific textbook. Um, I was lead editor and I have two chapters, but it was a collaboration of close to a hundred authors, co-authors okay. from around, you know, yeah. And health equity re researchers that came together and pulled together you know, it's 600 pages. Um, and light reading. <laughs> what? It's a beach read, it's light reading. <laughs> exactly. So, so um, it, it's accumulation of all the great research that has been done by, you know, basic science, health services researchers, social scientists, um, and we pulled all this together in, in a scientific textbook. So it's the very first, textbook out from um, my work when we were at the NIH and in addition to, you know, other great research that has been published um, around the country. What's the book called? The Science of Health Disparities Research okay. and published by Wiley and Sons. It came out last year, 2021. Congratulations. Thank you. And you're working on another book now, some chapters for a book. That's how you and I connected. Do you want to share a little bit about that? Yes. Um, this is a little bit about, so um, Dr. Sanjay Prasad um, is leading this book. It's, it's racial inequities and for employees, right? I'm mm -hmm. liking out on the chapter, but um, I'm working on with Dr. Bruce Sherman, who is also one of the co-editors mm -hmm. um, on how employees, employers can actually um, provide equitable benefits for the employees. And so we're looking at measures, um, measures that employees can think about. We have two or th two, three chapters actually that would be in the book. I'm not sure if I'm supposed to Details. Um, it's exciting. I'm and I'm grateful to be a part of that also with my yes, um, the group of people in that are collaborating on that are is just amazing. So I, I'm excited that should be out. I hope I think they were thinking this summer or this fall. So um so I'll I'll be posting about that for anyone who is interested. I don't think there's any links to share for that yet. Well, thank you so much for joining me and sharing what you do. I have never spoken to anyone in AI before. Well, 
not in healthcare, not in healthcare AI. I spoke with someone who does work with like, um, like um, what's it called? Um, GPS and navigation and stuff, AI in that sense and the racial disparities in, in that um, sector. And I, this was so amazing to hear the work that you're doing. And I love this idea of it's population health, but it's individualized and it's, it's for each unique person. Cause I, the, the, the biological difference between what is it like people, two people who are tall have more biological similarity than two people who are of the same racial category. So there's like no biological in medicine. We group it all the time, but we are so different, which is so incorrect and um, just kind of unlearning all that has been taught. So I love, thank you for sharing the work that you do and for doing it. And um, how can people find you? You're on LinkedIn. I am on LinkedIn. I'm also on Twitter. Um, and yes, please feel free to reach out. I would love to work with, I'm always happy to collaborate with um, individuals, anyone interested in health equity, and also to learn more about how we can bring AI and technologies and, and, and data um, into health and into medicine to really address racial and ethnic disparate, racial ethnic disparities and health equity, promote health equity. What is your Twitter handle? I'll put it in the in the show notes, but for people who don't look at show notes. It's at Dankwa, D-A-N-K-W-A, Irene, at Dankwa, Irene. Okay, perfect. All right, well, thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much. It was great chatting with you and I appreciate and humble to be here. Hi there. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Conscious Anti-Racism. Please be sure to follow or like us wherever you find your podcasts and also consider leaving a rating or review. You can follow Conscious Anti-Racism on Instagram and Twitter at Jill Wiener, MD, J-I-L-L-W-E-N-E-R-M-D. And please check out our Conscious Anti-Racism book on Amazon.